Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. This time we're going to ask our brother Buck to come up and give us the scripture reading in the morning. Brother Buck. And verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. To him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, or one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by this man, many by this man, and he, uh, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from chief priests to bind all that call him the name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way, entered into the house, putting his hand on him, said, Brother Saul, and the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in a way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scaled, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, uh, which were at Damascus. This time I'd like to have our brother Billy Skelton come up and give us the message that the Lord has laid on his heart. Well, good morning. Once again, welcome to Claremont Bible Fellowship. I could not have asked for a better lead-in song. I always think it's rather interesting because I, you know, Andy, when he does the singing for these things, I, he never says, well, you have a hymn, brother? I don't. And I've had it happen where I pick hymns, and I pick very odd method. I'm a numbers man. I pick, I pick them, uh, I got to get a group in the 100s, the 200s, the 300s. If anyone ever watched, they would notice this pattern in there. Anyways, there would still be a speaker that would say that was exactly the song, uh, the words were what I was going to speak on. You know what I call that, don't you? Spirit of God, right? Spirit of God does that thing. That's not something that uh, we bring about on our own. Um, you got the, the quote up? Very good. Uh, so this, my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. The quote behind me is what we'd like to encourage, 
exhort you this morning about doing the will of God. The quotes, if knowing the will of God is the greatest knowledge, then doing the will of God is the greatest achievement. There are some that will go through this lifetime without the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll come to the end of the road and they will start to ponder what comes next and then try to get things squared away with God. There are those that come to Christ at an early age and live their lives as best as they can, and yet not till the very end do they begin to ponder, I wonder, have I been doing God's will or have I simply been doing my own will? Would you come to the end of your life and have that epitaph on your gravestone? I did it my way, right? I did it my way. Well, what honor and glory does that bring to God? In light of eternity, I have but a short time. The Bible says of our lives this, our life is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Now, I know Brother Ed is... 90, and yet if you ask him about things that happened, it's not that he has to think back millennia ago. It's like they just happened. They just happened. I was sitting with a family gathering, and my brother-in-law is looking at my children and said, aren't they babies? Aren't they children? He remembers that when they were so small, and now they're 17. Time flies by. What might seem... Maybe it seems long when you're younger, when you get to the other end and you look back, how fast did it go by, folks? Like that, like that. So what am I going to do? What are you going to do with the time God's given? Are you doing your own will or are you doing God's will? So we want to find out what does the Bible, share, what does the Bible say to us about doing God's will? There are examples that we can see in the Old Testament that would be... Um, very simple in discerning God's will because God speaks directly. Uh, he would speak directly to, uh, uh, I think, of the, the prophet Jonah, where he's told Jonah specifically, here's what I want you to do. Jonah had no, no trouble discerning God's will, and that's a whole other topic, discerning God's will. He knew God's will. He just chose not to do it, at least not initially, right? He went the other way. But we look at other examples in the Old Testament where God reveals His will uh, and, and, what, and what's being done about it by the person to whom it's revealed. In the Old Testament and, and some of the New Testament, we read where God speaks with an audible voice. And I would ask you, if you just in your own heart, do you hear an audible voice when you're trying to discern the will of God? And if you don't hear an audible voice, well, how can you know? How can you know and do the will of God in your life if God doesn't speak to you? Well, we don't have a guarantee of a spoken word, but in your lap or on your device, you hold the written word of God. So that's where we would turn to determine what is God's will and how can I do it? How can I follow after it? Spend my, spend my years, my time that God's allotted um, in doing the will of God. There are things that you would consider uh, general obedience um, that we see in God's Word. We won't turn to these, but you can see the verses behind me. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. God tells us, pray without ceasing. Do we? 
How often do we? We read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do we? Do we study to show ourselves approved unto God? How much do we study? You're here today, so harping on Hebrews 10.25 won't be necessary, but it says, not, uh, not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together as, man, as the manner of such some is. Do you stop coming? That doesn't happen all at once, by the way. And I've watched with, uh, over the years working with youth. What will happen is they get off to college and they come up with an excuse the first week. I have an exam, I won't come. The next month, it's, 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 it's two days, two weeks that they miss. And eventually, they work themselves up to we're actually forsaking. Now, I'm not saying this in one Sunday's forsaking. Don't take that wrong. Um, but if you get to a certain point in your zeal to be at the local meeting, to be in the fellowship, not just attending, but be in the fellowship, it gets to the point where you can get, walk away from it and forsake the assembling of ourselves together. These are some things that we see. There's no need to, to wait for God to tell us that in an audible voice. We read that in God's Word. So this morning, the reading in the Scripture was an account in the book of Acts of a man named Ananias. When we read in Acts, uh, much of what Luke writes about is Paul. After he gets done with the apostles, he starts focusing about that chapter on, on Paul, the apostle. But at the very beginning, when Paul's the, after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, God calls a man named Ananias to do something for him. And we want to look at Ananias this morning and see how he does in doing the will of God. So if you're at Acts chapter 9, one more click. Um, we won't read through it again, but we'll reference those verses in Acts chapter 9 and look at Ananias and look at his doing God's will. And in verse number, just the, the three verses there, 10 through 12, says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus. His name was Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. So the first point about doing God's will is that sometimes it may not seem reasonable. Ananias, later in Paul's, uh, in chapter 22, Paul refers to him as a devout man, well you know, respected in the community. He, wasn't, he was a follower of the Lord Jesus, and he had a relationship with the Lord and was well, well respected. And he says here, the Lord tells him he wants him to go, and he gives him a specific job. And it's got to sound a little bit, you know, strange. Now, you're going to go to the street, you're going to go to this house, and there is a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he's waiting for a man named Ananias. And I want you to go and lay your hands and restore his sight to him. Later on, in the next few verses, you read why Ananias might think this is not reasonable. What was Saul doing there? He came with papers from the signed by the high priest to have uh, the people that were following Jesus, the people of the way, they were called, bound and brought back to Jerusalem to be put on trial. So, <laughs> Lord, I'm not so sure that this is 
a reasonable thing that you're asking me to, but it was God's will. God told him, this is what I want you to do. So Ananias has to make a decision. Is he going to follow what God tells him? Even though to him, humanly, he might say, that doesn't really seem very reasonable. You know, we see this in other accounts, and I just have a few pictures up there. Some you will recognize the lower right is supposed to be a picture of who? Abraham, and who's a little boy? Isaac. We don't know if he was that age, but think through, the, think through that, that account in Scripture briefly. That's back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. After God, after Mo, God gave Moses the words to write about creation, because remember, this would have been written around 1400 B.C., well after the events took place, but he wrote about creation. He talked about the fall. He talked about God selecting uh, a family through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed, through whom the Deliverer would come. And Abraham was given this promise, and so Abraham waited eagerly for it, and he waited, and he waited, and he doesn't have a son. So the custom of the land, if you uh, read, is that, well, if I don't have a son, but there was one born in my house, I can make him my heir. It was not uncommon to make that person. See, so he says, Eliezer of Damascus, he was born, can I not make him my heir? And God says, no, that's not the one. Later on, remember, Sarah came up with this plan. Here's Hagar, take my handmaid. Maybe she can have children for you because God says he's going to make a great nation or many nations of you. And again, Ishmael was born, but that's not the one for the promise. That one, Isaac, was the one. And Abraham, at 99 years old, it says in the account there, he laughed. <laughs> How am I going to? God says, about this time next year, you'll have a son through Sarah. And so finally, the promise's son arrives. So Abraham, who's trusted, he's the friend of God, he's trusted God. In chapter 22, God asks him to do something that seemed very unreasonable. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, and offer him to me as a burnt offering. What would you have done? Sometimes doing the will of God does not seem reasonable. We can read the end of the story and, 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 and we can look back at it and say, well, of course he was, you know, the, no. Abraham was in the middle of it. He had no idea. He just knew he had to trust the God of heaven, the one that brought a child to him when he was 99 years old. There's another picture up there, the one on the bottom left. Who can guess what account that is? Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. So now we're going to go a few hundred years later. They've already been uh, in Canaan, uh, three generations later with uh, Jacob. They go down to Egypt, 400 years, and eventually they're in slavery and God delivers them. They're now coming back to start to see the fulfillment of that promise by giving them that land that he promised Abraham. And Joshua is now the front man. Moses is dead. Moses, is, the, Lord, the Lord says, he's not here, but you, you, you go, I, I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. And the first city they face is the city of Jericho. And you, if you remember the account, the, Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he gave him this plan of battle. Here's what you're going to do. And, then, and it was just Joshua. It wouldn't be different if it was him and his generals getting the lowdown. It was just Joshua. Joshua had to scratch his head and think, you know, that doesn't seem very reasonable. Go march around the city, blow trumpets. What is God? What are you telling me to do? 
And you know the rest of the story. He trusted God. He didn't know the end of it. It seemed unreasonable to him, but he went on, and God took the city for him. Down went the walls, in went the Israelites. They took the city, just as God has promised. The last one might be a little bit harder. Oh, there you go. Gideon, Gideon. What an unreasonable situation. Now we're going to go, now hundreds of years later, we're now into the period of the judges. And God finds Gideon down there sifting a little bit of wheat that he can, trying to get something to eat. He says, hail thou, what is it, hail thou man of valor or something like that. And Gideon's like, are you talking to me? And he, after a series of conversations, Gideon is given the charge. God has an assignment for him to go defeat the armies of Midian. The Bible gives a number of about 135,000 soldiers that were there. And Gideon musters up an army of 32,000 people. Now, if you're counting and you're a mathematician, about how many people does each soldier have to take out if you have 32 taking on 135, roughly? Four. Thank you, math people. So I got to take on at least, I got to, everyone in my army has got to kill at least four Midianites for us to come out on top. God says what? That's too many. And he gave him a test. Well, no, first, not the test. He said, he said just ask him. If you're scared, you want to go home, go home. They didn't use those words, but, you know, if you're really not into this, you can go. 22,000 left. 10,000. Reasonable. I'm going up against 135,000. Doesn't seem likely, and now I've got to take out 13 and a half people, each of us. And God said, still too many, still too many. He gave him a test. The other slide I had was the ones they were out actually drinking down by the river. The one, the one man upright and the rest of them lapping like dogs. But the point being, God sifted it down to just a small group. And we read and we can see in his word why. Well, because God wanted to make sure who got the glory, that God got the glory. It was not reasonable what he was asking Gideon to do, but Gideon went, and God delivered the army of the Midianites into his hands. We can look at other examples we see um, there uh, in the Old Testament of God's will not being very reasonable. In the age in which we live, we have ones that God has given his, or shown his will to, I have, a, I have something for you to do. I have something that's going to involve you leaving where you're at and going to do something here. Well, Lord, that doesn't seem reasonable. I mean, the job that I have here, in a few more years, I'll get a, I have a pension. I, I, my 401k, what, what, would it, what would it be if I left and went into some full-time type of work that I don't know if that's reasonable for, for you to expect me to, to go? Think about this. If God's telling you to do something, there's only a short amount of time for that opportunity. I, uh, you've heard this quoted before with regard to the life that we have on earth. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for what? Christ will last. Only those things. None of these other things are going to hold any water with the Lord. You know that I got to be the assistant principal. Does that impress you, God? I've moved up the ladder. I'm number two. That's not going to hold any sway with anybody. Well, I should say with anybody, the people I evaluated this, but it doesn't mean nothing to, to, the, to God. And so I, I can't take these excuses and say, Lord, that's not reasonable for you to ask me to do that. But, you know, 
we read in 1 Corinthians, you can keep your finger in Acts, but in 1 Corinthians there's verses that Paul writes about this and it makes perfect sense when you look back and read it now. It says, starting in verse 18, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And you can read down in verse 26 again uh, about those who are called and, and what God has chosen. It may seem foolish. It may seem unreasonable. But God hath chosen those things in, in doing His work, especially in bringing those to salvation. Um, I just, as a, a small personal example, I remember finishing a, uh, my a year at Emmaus and I came back to the assembly in South Florida that I was at. It was Central Gospel Chapel back then. And I was gun ho about going to serve the Lord at camp. But you know, there were people that said, you need to go get a summer job. I mean, you've been, you, 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 need, you need this, you need that. And I thought, why are you making me guilty about giving up my summer to go, you know, give it wholly to the Lord? Because to some, it seemed unreasonable to be doing that. Grow up, Billy, go get a job. No, no, I was, you know, the Lord called. When the Lord calls you, you can't necessarily pay attention to what others are tugging you away if you're convinced that it's God that's directing you. Um, where's that little clicker thing? The next is that doing the will of God may require great risk. In verses 13 and 14, Ananias says to the Lord, Now listen, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. There's a risk involved. Although Saul cannot see, Ananias knows if he goes there, there's risk. Saul has papers. He might just, once he determines... This is, this is somebody who's a follower of Jesus. Bind him. We're going to haul him back to Jerusalem. There's a little bit of a risk involved there for him to actually go, and go down to where Saul of Tarsus is. But he's got to have to weigh. What did God tell me to do? And later on you're going to see, because God revealed to Ananias what happened on the road when, he met Saul, when Jesus met Saul of Tarsus. Again, we can look at some examples in the Old Testament, the Bible bears out uh, that there is a risk in doing what God wants. Let's start with the middle one, Esther. The book of Esther, you'll, you'll remember, God's not mentioned by name. But in uh, chapter 4 of Esther, we see that uh, Mordecai and the Jews, the, the order has gone out. Uh, about the destruction of the Jews and their mourning. And he sends a message uh, to Esther through this courier, this uh, uh, official in the, uh, in the kingdom, and says, you know, look, Esther, we need help here. And they come up with a plan. Mordecai says, go and tell the king what's going on. And she sends back through the messenger and says, listen, 
you may not understand court, how the court works here. If I walk into the, where, the, where the king is uninvited, my head could come off. You can't come in uninvited. There's only one way out, and that's if he extends the golden scepter. Mordecai pointed out something she didn't think about. And even though it doesn't say God spoke to him or spoke to her, we can see the providence of God. He said, God's going to deliver his people whether you go or not. And who knows, but for this, for this occasion, God didn't put you right where you are. Think that through when you're in some place where God's telling you to do something and you're hoping that he'll choose somebody else. Maybe it's simply that God put you where you are, gave you access to the people that you have some contact with, that you have something that God wants you to do specifically, not for somebody else to do. And we remember Esther said she's going to go after she said, fast, pray three days. I'm going to go in and if I perish, I perish. Sometimes doing God's will will involve some risk. The one at the bottom, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There's that big idol up there that Nebuchadnezzar put up. And he said, when the music plays, everybody's supposed to bow down. They didn't have to ask God what to do. God told them already. He knew, they knew God's will. They were not to bow down to idols. This is a very tough one in the world we live in. We want to succumb to what the people around us do. We want to be accepted or at least not stick out to the point that it's obvious that we are different. You are different. You're a peculiar people. That's what we're described as, a peculiar people. That's nothing to be ashamed of. They, when everybody bowed down, there stood three people. Huh, they weren't bowing down. And it wasn't necessarily out of uh, obstinance. We're not going to do what you say. What they said was, we can't bow down. He said, Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, if you don't bow down, I'll give you one more chance. I've invested a lot in you guys. I've, you know, he, he brought them in. He, well, actually, he kidnapped them. He took them from Judah, brought them over. But he spent, invested some training in these guys to be useful to him in his, in his court. And maybe they, maybe they just misunderstood. So he said, I'll give you another chance. Strike up the band. When the band music plays, bow down and I'll forgive all. I, I won't. Struck up the band. They don't bow down. He said, listen, king, we don't have to give you an answer in this matter. He said, our God will, may deliver us, and if he doesn't, that's fine. That's fine as well. And with, with, there was a risk involved in this because they could have been burned. They could have been burned to death. I can think of a, a, a numerous ways I would rather die than being burned to death, right? But uh, here they were faced with something that King Nebuchadnezzar had no reason to doubt Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled his word, didn't he? He took and he cast them, had them cast into the fiery furnace. But they were delivered. God delivered them. And the last one, that one will be harder. So that one I can... I, I, Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you want to look at the account. And I'll tell you the account for, for sake of time. We won't read it all. But in 2 Chronicles 20, there's a king of Judah by the name of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, um, 
ruled. Uh, Judah, a good king, he uh, feared the Lord, and he heard about a giant multitude coming from beyond the sea, from Syria, and this was a huge army that was coming in after Jehoshaphat and after the kingdom of Judah. He went before the Lord. He said, Lord, there's nothing we can do. Um, he, uh, he says there, uh, verse 7, Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people and gave them to the descendants of Abraham, your friends forever? Anyways, he goes through and pleads with God, and God says, you know, God actually speaks to a, a, a person. He raises up, uh, I forget what verse it's in, but... Uh, oh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel in verse 14. And he spoke to the people and said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out to face the army. Your singers will be in the front singing praise, and I'm going to deliver you. Again, that goes back to point one. It was very unreasonable to think this was a great plan, but he, had, he did God's will, put the singers up front, walked out, and that's another thing, it took faith. I had to go out to where the, 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 the soldiers were coming in, stand, he said, and see the deliverance. It says in verse number, um, verse 17, you do not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. So while there was a risk involved, he still went, took the, the, the army out, the singers out, and God delivered. So there may be risk involved in serving God. You know, the risk that we face may not be a physical death. It may, but it may not be. If God calls you to a country that's closed where you know proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ is unlawful, and carries with it some consequences. Well, it could be physical harm. And there you have to grapple with God, whether or not He can protect you in, in doing His will or not. Sometimes it's just something as simple as the persecution you're going to go through in your sphere, whether it's school or work or, or wherever it might be, by standing up for the Lord Jesus. Mark 8, 38 says, Whoever is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of him when I... My, come with my, 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 let me read the verse before I misquote it. But uh, Mark 8, 38, the Lord makes clear we're not to be ashamed of our Savior. There might be persecution that comes our way. We may face some things that are not too pleasant for, for being identified with the people of God. For whoever, it says in Mark 8, 38, is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we might face some risk in our serving the Lord. Doing God's will is based upon our relationship with him. And uh, those first seven verses or eight verses of, that were read, we see that Ananias had a relationship with God. I said that later in chapter 22, he's described as being a, a man of good report uh, with the Jews even, and he was uh, a, a, a disciple, devout follower of the Lord Jesus. So he had already a relationship so that when God called him and sent him, 
gave him something to do. Because of that relationship he had with Jesus, he can hear it and he can act on it. Something we didn't see Jonah do. He heard it but did not act on it. And we can think of, uh, if we look back at the, the Old Testament, the top right picture, who might that be? Samuel, when he heard the voice of God. Samuel, Samuel. Eventually, he said, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. All right? He answered God. Um, Isaiah, that's not a picture of the throne room, but the, the, it was in chapter 6 of Isaiah where God says, Whom shall we send? And to who shall go for us? And Isaiah, who was in, seeing this, in, in, this vision, he spoke up. He said, Here am I. Send me. His relationship as a prophet of God had him desiring to step forward and be the one that God would use. Um, we can ask ourselves, are we dedicated to serving Him and do we have what it takes? Is our relationship such that we will go when He says go? The last one was of Moses, who after 40 years of training in the desert, God used to lead the children of Israel out in the Exodus. Doing the will of God will achieve eternal results. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, 16, and 18, we read this. God says to Ananias, Go, for he, speaking of Paul or Saul then, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then in verse 18, it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight, and he arose and was baptized. The results, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle and was used by God tremendously. We, over half, right? I think over half of our the books, well, I mean not over half, but close to half of the books of the New Testament. God used this man to finish communicating his word uh, to man, the written word, save the ones at the very end that John wrote later on. But this is how God used doing God's will. Ananias, following what God had led him to do, achieved great results. Um, I was The picture up there, I'm going to read, read you an illustration. I will go ahead and read it. Um, it's about the mission call of an African person who went to the interior of Africa. I won't tell you his name, so I read the illustration, although some of you might could guess. After many years of service in South Africa, Robert Moffat returned to Scotland to recruit helpers. He traveled many miles one cold wintry night to speak at a church, but he was dismayed that only a small group had come to hear him. And what bothered him even more was that the only people in attendance were ladies. And although he was grateful for their interest, he had hoped to challenge men. He had chosen as his text, Proverbs 8, 4, Unto you, O men, I call. In his discouragement, he almost failed to notice one small boy in the loft pumping the bellows of the organ. Moffat felt frustrated as he gave his message, for he felt that uh, a very few women could be expected to undergo the rigorous life of the undeveloped jungle. But God works in mysterious ways. And although no one volunteered that evening, the young fellow assisting the organist was deeply moved by the challenge. 
And as a result, he promised God he would follow in the footsteps of this pioneer missionary. And he remained true to his vow. When he grew up, he devoted his life to carrying the gospel to the unreached tribes of Africa. And his name was David Livingston, right? Livingston, I presume. You guessed that one. You, you really got one up on me. I would never have guessed that one. Um, so we'll close with this. Is the Lord revealing his will in an area of your life? Is it cause for you to immediately obey God's will as he reveals it to you? Remember, I actually didn't use this one, did I? The opportunity that's up there of the opportunity of a lifetime must be grasped within the lifetime of the opportunity. Meditate on that. It doesn't last forever. The picture up there is for the last illustration. An usher at a crusade in North Carolina seated two scruffy farm boys uh, for the meeting up in the choir. They wanted to be in the choir. He didn't have to. The two 15-year-old boys joined the choir uh, and sat behind the pulpit. And they were trying to escape the withering gaze and damnation preaching of the visiting revivalist named Mordecai Ham. Does anyone know who Mordecai Ham is? I see a few nods, right? But because of his willingness to do, what, to do God's will and seat them there, the two young boys, Grady Wilson and Billy Graham, came to know Christ that night and to serve him mightily. So we never know who we may touch in doing God's will. I hope these thoughts are encouraging to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much once again for Christ. We thank you for the spirit that would direct our path. We realize, Father, we don't have a guarantee for how long we'll be here. We're reminded, Father, that uh, we must work while yet tis day for the night cometh when no man can work. We won't have an opportunity. So help us now, Father, to do your will. Help us now to seek that which you would have us to do, that we would be able to, have, to look back as Paul and say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. We ask these things now in our Savior's name. Amen.